0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittum, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while bouncing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by ASICS. Today, as you may have seen on your Instagram feeds and over on YouTube, is Metaspeed Paris Day. That's right, the new racers from ASICs were just kind of... The embargo was lifted and people are talking all about them. They will be released, I think, next week or maybe the week after, uh, early March. But palpable buzz about the shoes that you saw on the feet of some of America's best during the Olympic trials. They are now about to be released for the masses and the reviews are everywhere and they are exceedingly positive for both the Metaspeed Sky Paris and the Metaspeed Edge Paris. I can't wait to get them on my feet. I don't have them yet so I can't talk about my own personal experience, but people are absolutely raving about these shoes and I cannot wait to test them myself. But before we get into it, I will say today's episode with Caleb McCoy is absolutely fantastic. Caleb is a truly special individual, someone who overcame some very, very serious issues early on in his life, from addiction to incarceration and the like. And he opened up about all of it and also about his Native American heritage, something that he's also worked through as someone who kind of lived kind of in two different cultures and um, the duality therein, so this was such a special episode. We don't talk a ton about running until basically the last quarter of the episode uh, we will be doing a follow-up with Caleb at another date to talk more about running because his running background is absolutely fantastic, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this part first. That's for sure. so let's get into my conversation with Caleb McCoy. all right, Caleb McCoy, thank you so much for coming on the show, my man.
1: I appreciate it man i'm I'm pumped up to. Get on here and just have a you know deep, meaningful, fun conversation with you.
0: You said it. That's exactly what I'm hoping for too. We actually had a chance to meet down in Orlando. That's like The first time that we actually spoke in it was down at the trials, and we had some really fun conversations down there. You are somebody who there's there's an endless supply of things that we can talk about. In addition to that, not only are you gonna be on this podcast, you're also on the Running Effects podcast last week. You have a, a documentary coming out as well, hopefully around Boston Marathon Weekend. So, Caleb, the people who don't know you, what, how do you introduce yourself from a running context? From a running context. And then we'll <sighs> expand it out from there. Um, so,
1: well, I mean, would you like for me to just explain where I come from and everything else? Like, you know I'm... what?
0: Well, yeah, I was going to try to like, like make it small and then expand. But let's just, let's just scope it all the way out. Let's go let's okay. all the way out.
1: So my name is Caleb McCoy II, and I am from Cherokee, North Carolina. I am a proud member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Grew up here on the Kuala Boundary um, from the Birdtown community, and um, I'm a person in a long-term recovery. Um, I'm trying to just do a lot of healing from uh, just years and years of trauma, um, You know, battling uh, multiple substances, addiction, I've been, I'll be celebrating seven years clean um, in April, actually, riding around the Boston Marathon. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to, uh, as, as Cherokee people, we, we try to make decisions um, with the mindset and the thinking that what we're doing right now is going to be affecting the, seven, the next seven generations. And so for a long time, it was all about me. It's all about selfishness. It's all about fueling my addiction. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to change that. And so one of the ways that, you know, I, I work my recovery, one of the tools that I use for my recovery, my healing, my mental health is running. And so I started running back in, uh, 2017.
0: There you go. Not a coincidence, I'm sure. So when did you as a individual start making decisions or framing decisions in the context of it affecting gy- generations to come as opposed to your own needs or even more specifically your own short-term needs?
1: Well, you know, I had this radical, um, encounter with God when I was locked up in 2017. It, It changed my entire life. It changed my trajectory, my trajectory. Um, and, just my mindset, you know, and I started to to walk on this healing journey, and this recovery journey, and so that's when I started to think of the mindset, think of the mindset of like, you know, um, how can I use all these mistakes? How can I use this pain? How can I use um, the trauma that I have experienced and you know for purpose and for good and to help other people? And so that's when that mind shift started to happen. Was in was in uh, when I was locked up in Swain County Detention Center in Bryson City, North Carolina.
0: Gotcha. And were you when you were trying to think of, I guess, in this context of making decisions in that light and making decisions not only for yourself, but for other people, did you immediately connect it to the the spiritual perspective and or your Cherokee background? You also connected to that or how and how much are those two interrelated, not only in terms of the spiritual side, but also like the cultural side, just like your own relationships to uh, the humans in your life and the people that you grew up with?
1: Yeah, so I I definitely think they're interrelated. God, creator, um, is something that's very, very important to me. And so my spirituality and my Cherokee trying—I didn't grow up, and I didn't go to Cherokee high school. Um, One of the things that really led me to going down—it was a a number of different things. It was a perfect storm of just different circumstances that led me going down to um, this life of addiction and this path of just— you know, going on this really, really challenging journey that I went on with, with drugs and everything. But, uh, one of the things that led me to that was identity issue. Like I grew up in Cherokee, you know, went, uh, like I said, in the Birdtown community, which is in the heart of the, the boundary, but I went to a predominantly white school, um, right off the boundary called Swain County high school. And back then, it was, we had a very, very small percentage of students that were indigenous. So I was always literally trying to f- fight my way through high school because I was Native going to a white school. But also, too, because I was Native and went to a white school, my own family, the people that I grew up with on the quality boundary, seen me as a traitor. And I was, con- I was, you know, in this identity crisis, I was... Too dark to fit in with the white kids, and then the the natives called me a coconut. I'm brown on the outs- outside and white on the inside, so I was constantly battling that, and not knowing who I was as a Cherokee man, and not having that ide- that, that identity, um, you know, led me to not having standards and morals, and and not understanding like, um, you know, meaning and purpose, and like I said, just I- an identity
0: crisis. And, and what? Oh, I'm sorry. We need to hop in there. Um, what? was the reason that you end up going to the Swain high school as opposed to the Cherokee high school or, you know, and did that decision happen even before the high school years, maybe like in the elementary or middle school years?
1: Yeah. So I actually started going to, um, an elementary school, uh, Swain, Swain elementary school when I was in kindergarten. So I always went to Swain high school or Swain, Swain County schools, um, from the time that I started. And so my mom, sent me down there just because the education, the testing scores were a little bit better than Cherokee. And uh, she thought that that was going to help me, you know, have, have more opportunities.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Cause like I, the rest, part of the reason I asked, cause you know, when those decisions get made at that early age, it's not you making the decision, right? It's just, Hey, this is a family decision It's the parents usually leaning in and, and making those kinds of decisions. When you were of high school age, was the decision in your hands like was that decision that you made or was it still kind of like a familial decision to send you there and how did you grapple with it at the time yeah it was i didn't want to leave you know because i
1: went to uh, i grew up with all these kids and you know you get comfortable and you know you you you're you're in your element. You're you're in with the the people that you grew up with all the way through throughout um, elementary school, middle school, high school. So I felt like you know this is my this is my place. Even though I was trying to figure out who I was at, in this you know predominantly white school, um, you know, and sports kind of entered into my life, and that was um, I had some success as a runner as a as a seventh actually as an eighth grader. My my seventh grade year i sucked man uh we had we always we've always had a strong um running program at swain high school or swain schools um actually our girls uh right now currently have won nine state championships eight holy state cow championships. wow so, yeah uh indoor um spring track and cross country they've won the past nine state championships so i mean even back then we had a three-peat when i was in high school when I was coming up into the running program. But my seventh grade year, we had a big team, like 12, I'm going to say like 12 runners. I was the second to last on the team. Um, I did not want to do it. I hated it. Uh, I stuck it out, though. And then my eighth grade year, I uh, ended up winning a conference. And so I started to see some success in running. Um, and that honestly helped me to feel like I had a place. You know, you get some, you get some self-confidence. You get some self-esteem. And you become, you know, popular. And I was, I was known as the runner in 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 high in uh, middle school, entering into high school. But back to your question about the like the spirituality a- aspect and 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 my culture, as as a believer and as a follower of Christ, like it's really important that um, for me to stay out of selfishness and to make sure that I am working my recovery. I need to if we're not, if we're not serving, we're not recovering. And so that's one of the things that I try to remember, like, how can I give back? You know, who am I helping today? Like what kind of impact am I making? And so that is very much connected to who I am as a Cherokee man as well, because we have this thing that um, it's a word called Tohi and Tohi means harmony, you know, and how are you connected to your community? How are you connected to creation? How are you connected to creator? You know, and it's this um, harmony balance. You know, what what does that look like? And so, those are a couple of things, uh, just a couple of ways that I try to live my life
0: now. On the spiritual side and on the cultural side, how does uh, a Christian faith also meld within being Cherokee and identifying uh, within that culture? <sighs> it does
1: not You know, it's it's a wrestling. It's it's something that. Um, depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. Um, Obviously, there has been a lot of damage by religion, um, not just for indigenous people, but people from all over, you know, in all different walks of life. And so one of the things that has helped me um, with my own faith and being Cherokee, like you hear messages all the time, especially in our community, like it's almost bad to be Cherokee. Like it's, it's almost like, um, the fact that we would practice our culture, um, sing our songs, um, can, and a lot of depending on who you ask in a very conservative Christian communities, they can look at that as like demonic almost like, like you're, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not supposed to be who you are as a Cherokee person. And I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I'm a very progressive thinker. And, you know, just looking at the life of Christ and like seeing he was an indigenous person. He came from a tribe, you know, and and so I kind of I'm like thinking to myself, well, you know, that makes sense to me. Um, But I mean, it's it's a very complex issue as far as like Christianity and being Cherokee. And, you know, you have a lot of people who are um, what's the word I'm looking for? very traditionalist that do not subscribe to Christianity. But I think there's a lot of parallels in Christianity and Cherokee culture that, um, that I see that help me to um, just continue to practice my faith and not step away from that, because that's what I need. That's what saved me. That's what changed me. That's what transformed me was coming to Christ. And I feel like God creator wouldn't have given me that if um, it wasn't meant for me, and it wasn't healthy, and it wasn't good.
0: Yeah, you mentioned what it was like on the Christian side. How about from the cult, the Cherokee side? Did you get pushback from you know either family members or, or your community for embracing the Christian side so strongly? If it if it at points was contradictory to some of the things that either they believed or that they practiced?
1: No. No you don't get you don't get pushed back and that's something like I am very much in tune with the Christian side of things more so than I am the cultural side of things because where I grew up, you know, and they we didn't practice grow like in my home and my family we didn't practice our culture, we didn't speak our language we didn't we didn't talk about the traditions and and you know I wasn't educated on those things, so I'm like I am um trying to I'm trying to make up for lost time in that area and everything, and so my my wife, she was very. It was it was actually different for her. She grew up in Cherokee, graduated valedictorian of her of Cherokee High School. Um, her family, you know, made crafts, artists in, in the community and everything, and so,
0: you know, I, I learn a lot from her. And we're gonna get to the running, people. Don't worry, we'll get to the running for sure. But I think we need to. I, I'm I, first of all, I personally you know, want to scratch this itch. And I'm curious about this, but I think it's important to to lay the foundation and the groundwork for this. So you mentioned that the duality issues that you faced as a kid growing up in one community, and then also in another community, and that the inability to 100% connect with both in part because of the other one. When did that um, when did that duality start to manifest itself into the trauma that may have led to the, the, or could have been the reason for the, uh, substance abuse?
1: Honestly, I think it was a little later. I think it was, um, well, I guess let me just go ahead and get started with how I even became addicted. I was getting migraines when I was 11 years old. Um, and I think right now, if you, if you research it, like the average age for first time drug use is, is 11 in our country. And so I'm getting migraines. I go to the doctor, go to the neurologist. They prescribe me a narcotic. You know, this is early or late nineties at the time. I think it was like around 97 and very, very, very quickly, Matt, I became addicted. And like I said, I think it was just a, just a number of different circumstances. You know, one of the things that you see in a lot of indigenous communities is generational trauma. Right. From, again, like we were talking about just a second ago, like gener- like trauma that has been caused by religion, trauma that has been caused by um, domestic violence, you know, sexual assault within the family. All these things, all these really, really um, challenging issues that just plague indigenous communities, like it was no different for me. So to understand me, like you got to understand where I came from. My mom witnessed her mom getting murdered in front of her. She was nine years old, and her stepdad comes in, shoots my grandmother in front of my mom. So my mom like experiences that trauma very early on. Um, grows up in children's home. Her dad, um, who wasn't really a presence in his, in her life, he gets murdered when she's thirteen. So my mom lost most of her. Well, my grandparents were lost to uh, to murders. Um, my dad was born in 1947. Grew up dirt poor here in Cherokee. And, you know, it was uh, very, very challenging times back then. You know, like I said, I grew up dirt poor, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of alcoholism, things of that nature. And so they with with like understanding that they brought a lot of their own trauma, you know, into their, like growing up and everything. And it was mental health was just not something that you talked about back then. And so they have their own struggles and everything. And as me growing, you know, me and my sister growing up, um, us having a blended family, my sisters, my, I don't have any full siblings. And so um, my dad had three um, kids from his first marriage. My mom had one from her first marriage. And then there's me. And, and again, I, identity, like I didn't, they're all older than me, you know. And my oldest, my, my siblings from my dad's first marriage, Uh, relationship never really accepted me um, because he went and started another family, you know, and that caused some tension, some animosity, I think. And so I've got all these things going on. My parents got their stuff that, you know, they're trying to work out. Um, But I had love in the home. They instilled a lot of great qualities in me. And, but still, i you know, I'm witnessing domestic violence. I'm witnessing alcoholism, you know, um, drug use, things of that nature. <clears throat> and so when I get prescribed this narcotic with all those things going on, man, like that helped me escape that reality. And that helped me feel comfortable in my own skin. And so within a month, um, it's a, it was a nasal spray called Stadol. Within a month, I am abusing this medication. My mom realizes that um, it's getting gone really fast and it's supposed to light, you know, it's supposed to last a month and it's getting gone within weeks. And so she starts to hide it in her underwear drawer. I'm sneaking into her underwear drawer, getting the medication. Um, come to find out my sister's doing it as well. She's seven years older than me. Like, so she's fighting her own addiction. Um, very early on, she's running away from home at 14, 15 years old. So it's just a lot of, it's a lot of chaos, man. And, um, I know my mom and dad were doing the best that they, they could, but I mean, it was just really challenging growing up and seeing them fight, separate things of that nature. Um, you know, I, it was, I started to, that was my escape.
0: Now, when you were that age, were you aware, or you should say, how early were you aware, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was an addiction as opposed to just, Hey, this is helping me cope. And this is helping me feel better. This is helping me feel like me. I had no idea.
1: I had no awareness about that. You know, I didn't, nobody talked about that. Um, I, addiction was rampant in my family. It still is. Um, but that was just not something that anybody talked about back then, you know? So, but you know, sports entered the equation and instead of continuing down this path of destruction, like, um, really, really quickly. I had sports come into that equation and that really helped me stay on straight and narrow for a little while.
0: Hey guys, our podcast is brought to you by V.O2, a coaching app based on the science of legendary coach Jack Daniels. Unlike most other running apps, V.O2 is truly personalized. It understands the type of runner you are, what you're training for, and how to maximize your effort. It also gives you control over your training, leveraging your feedback with fine-tuned training, and it leads to continuous progression. Not only that, you get a really good picture on how your time in a certain event or certain workout can be extrapolated to other paces and other times, right? So if you're like, hey, I have a recent 5K result. What does that mean in terms of like oh, my threshold pace or what I could run a half marathon in and things like that? It really does work well. And when you're trying to set your your paces as a runner, it can get a little tricky sometimes. So getting that pace range is really helpful. Again, not just a pace time, a pace range, and that is exactly what V.02 can provide you. Try out their fully automated v. adaptive Trainer and start syncing your training paces to your Apple Watch, Koros, or Garmin. You can use code Rambling to save 20% off after your 14-day free trial. That's right, a free trial, and then 20% off on V.02 today. Just visit v.02.com and you'll be all set. All right. So, how did running help you feel better? Not just from a social perspective and getting, you know, getting uh, into a position where you felt accepted for who you were, and you didn't have the push and pull of identity from the ex- the external side of things. And then also, how did it make you just feel better physically? You know, as someone who you know, working through some challenging things in the middle school years. <sighs>
1: You know, I didn't have that understanding of running um, and what it was doing for me in so many ways like I do now. So after I got out of eighth grade, went into high school, I stopped running cross country, which the coaches hated. And I started playing football. So I played football, uh, basketball, and I ran track. And I mean, I'm pretty successful in all those things going, you know, going out throughout my high school career win a state championship in football. And my junior year, I, I started to really excel in track. And, um, I had an opportunity to either play football or run track, um, my senior year. And I get drugs, enter the equation again. only except this time, I start to use math my junior year of, you know, football season. And, as six as a 16 year old you know using
0: i don't care how old you are using math is freaking terrible right and so i, I gotta ask let me hop in here you know when you're 11 you get your a doctor gives you nasal sprays so this is going to make you feel better and it does it makes you feel better so it's easy to see all right like i'm gonna start taking this more i'll feel better more with that said you know even for a teenager like you knew that like you obviously were very aware that like meth is a completely different scenario right like this is not like this is not here to to cure my migraines this is a drug and i and you know to walk me through the thought process of being like you know going from all right i don't use meth to like no i'm going to start using this even though you were obviously very aware that this was not something that people should be doing
1: yeah i think there's a couple things in that you know looking back on it that i was thinking like first it was just normal for it was normal to see people in my community in my family um in my friend group at the time to to use drugs and to party and do different things and so I was like well this is what you do right and another thing too I was doing it for performance like the guy that the 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 guy that I was that introduced it to me my my buddy at the time um he's he's actually still my friend he's doing really well in life um but anyways, he was like, "Hey man, this is we're gonna put this in our water bottle. It's gonna make us play like Superman, um, you know, and everything's gonna be good." And I, I I listened to that, you know, and I started to to use it before games and everything. And then I realized that things were getting out of control d- deeper deeper into my my um, football season. I had to go take the SAT, Matt. I'd been up all night partying, using math. And I start to, I start to um, come down off the math as I'm taking my SAT. And I remember falling asleep on my desk during the SAT because I just couldn't hold my eyes open where I'd been up all night on mass. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. Like, this is insane. Um, And so I stopped using, I stopped using it then. And, uh, but I mean, the damage had been done. You know, I was hanging out with you know the party group and everything, and I just wasn't prioritizing my studies, wasn't pro- prioritizing my sports, and I ended up failing a couple of classes. My, se- my My spring semester, my senior year, and those opportunities that I had to go to the next level were taken. Right? I mean, they I, I failed classes, and so they they withdrew those those offers that they had given me. And then my identity as an athlete was was the only thing that I hung my hat on. That's taken. Then I'm like standing there, like, "Well, who am I?" And that's kind of how things started to really transition and go down, go downhill really quickly.
0: All right, walk me through that time um, in terms of like this line of demarcation, where like, okay, my chances of you know participating in sports in college are over. This is, again, this is your perception at the time, as opposed to being like, okay, no, I can. All right. I fell down, but I can get back up. I can go to Juco. I can, you know, I can, I can make this work. I can go walk on. And I get, you know, like there were obviously looking back, there were probably other opportunities at your disposal if you were maybe open to them or had really searched them out and be like, okay, no, I'm not going to be denied. I'm going to make this happen. Walk me through that line of demarcation where for you at that moment, it was like, no, this period has now closed. And now I'm entering this whole new chapter, this much more self-destructive chapter. You know, I mean, I think
1: it really, unless those things are really instilled in you, which um, I don't, I mean, I'm sure my mom and dad try to instill that, you know, resiliency, um, grit, determination. I mean, because I
0: know you got it now, right? Like, if like I, I guarantee you, if like the door is closed to you now, you'd be like, well, I'm going in through the window. Like, that's, that's not going to stop me.
1: Right. The obstacle is the way, you know, and. I mean, but I just didn't have that type of mindset back then, you know, and I didn't have anybody um, trying to do this intervention with me, like, okay, you know, like, this is where we're at, but you know, we can come back from this. I just didn't have those voices in my head. I didn't have those voices in my life at that time, and so, you know, I just thought thought it was over, and so barely graduate high school again. Like my 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 grades just suck. So I mean, going to college, like, unless it was a community college. Um, just wasn't on the table, you know, wasn't in cards. So, um, I, that's when I have my first son, um, shortly after I graduate high school and then he and his mom, my, my mom, or excuse me, his mom and I separated. And then I have my second son with another woman. So I have two sons within almost a year to the day with two different women. And I've got this crippling addiction. I'm partying all the time my, my health is just declining. I'm putting on a ton of weight. I'm doing pills like crazy. Um, I just, you know, introduced back to harder drugs again, um, doing cocaine, smoking crack. Like my life was just unraveling really, really quick. And again, like I think that just comes down to like identity, you know, my, for me, that was like this identity crisis, not knowing who I am, not knowing who I'm supposed to be, not knowing like the things that I was truly capable of because you know i wasn't around the people that could help instill that in in me and so i start to uh snort pain pills at the time and at 23 years old my dad is diagnosed with terminal cancer and it was just the most devastating news ever right and so i remember getting that news and thinking to myself snorting pills just isn't doing it for me anymore like this pain um and this helplessness that I'm feeling right now, like I need something harder to help me escape from this, and so enter into uh, IV drug use, and I have these little God winks, I call them, you know, or these 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 different times throughout my life where I feel like God was intervening in my life, and fi- at my son's five years old, I'm 23 at the time, my youngest son, and he's I'm trying to, I mean. I can't hold down a job because I've got this this drug addiction going on. So I'm bouncing around from job to job and it gets to the point to where my I can't take care of my son anymore. But this initial turning point in my life, I'm sitting in the bathroom mat and I'm I'm on I'm on the toilet, like, and I've got this pill pulled up in this syringe. And I'm staring at this syringe because I've told myself since I started using drugs after high school, I'm like. I've got this under control as long as I don't shoot up and I'm not like those junkies. You know, I was constantly comparing myself to other people and like putting these guardrails up, you know, and saying like, I've got, I've got me, right. I've got this as long as I don't do that. But now here I am and I'm at a crossroads and I'm doing the thing that I said I was never going to do. And so I'm staring at this syringe and my son starts to knock on the door. Now, again, it's five years old. He's like, dad, Dad, are you okay? What are you doing? And I lay a towel down at the bottom of the door, and we kind of recreate this scene in the documentary, but I lay the towel down at the bottom of the door, and I shoot up. And the feeling of shame that I had because I became the things I said I was never going to become, and because looking back at my life, seeing so much potential growing up, um, so many gifts that I, you know, I've been blessed with and everything. And all those are just going down the drain. And I'm like, man, you know, this is it. This is all I'm ever going to be. And that was my thinking for years. So I move in with my dad and, you know, he's fighting. I give him, uh, six months to live. He's fighting pancreatic cancer. And, um, during that time, you know, I'm moving with him and I'm still on his pain medication, um breaking into his safe. I'm writing checks, um, cleaning out his bank account. And he continued to love me through that, man. And just believe in me and, and would always tell me like, remember your name, remember your name. Like my, our name, Caleb, actually comes from the Bible. Like you're supposed to be a leader. He would say things like that to me. Mind you though, like faith was never something big that we talked about. We didn't go to church or anything like that, but he would drop those little nuggets on me, you know, and it got to the point though, where my mom had to move him out of the house and in the house with her and her husband, because I couldn't be trusted. And I remember like I was living upstairs at the time and I would hear my dad go into the bathroom and I would scurry down the steps and I would army crawl across the floor and I'd get into his pillow where his pain, pain medication was at, or I'd get into his safe while he was in the bathroom, puking, diarrhea, fighting cancer. And here I am, you know, I feel like I'm just speeding up this process, you know, and, and it was, it was a really challenging time looking back on it, man. And it's hard for me to share those things, but that's just what my addiction was doing to me.
0: Well, thank you for sharing it and being so, um, just so honest about all of this. And I, I really appreciate it. And people listening to it, I'm sure do as well. Um, when you're going through this era of your life, not, not, thinking back now and kind of putting emotions on it, but just in that time, because obviously um, you, as you mentioned, you were kind of moving the goalposts. Like I got this as long as I don't do that. And I'm sure you did that several times, right? I'm, I'm fine. If I don't do this, as long as I don't smoke crack, as long as I don't, you know, use a needle or, you know, so on and so forth and, and things like that. Like I'm still a good person. I'm still me. And then, you know, the, moving those goalposts, being aware of moving them, but at the same time, you know, th- those, the self-aware moments of like, what am I, what am I doing? What am I becoming? How was that? How was the interplay between the, the self-knowledge that you had of like this, I should not be doing this. How was the interplay between that and the, the addiction self of like, you know, kind of like we're doing whatever we need to do here. Like, we're, you know, you are, you were a slave to this, this addiction in a sense, like what, what was the interplay there in the moment? Um, as you were wrestling with these things. <sighs>
1: Honestly, the voice of reasoning reasoning and having a conscience very very rarely showed up. Um if it did, I would drown it out with more drugs. I didn't want to feel it. I I refused to feel any any anything that even resembled a conscience. You know, and I would just go that, I think that's that's why I just continued to stay high because I couldn't stand the person looking back at me in the mirror.
0: Gotcha. So the problem became the solution, which became the problem, which became the solution. It's just like the negative cycle it just kept going around and around. Absolutely. Um, can you tell me about why you were incarcerated a couple of years later?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I have this... I'll lead you up to that point. You know, my dad, toward the end of his life... He's put in hospice, and I go to the hospital. Um, He calls me. He wanted to speak to me, Um, asked everybody else to leave, and I'm standing by his bedside. And I'm looking down at my namesake. I'm his namesake. Excuse me. This is my hero. This is the man that I look up to. This is the man who I've seen. You know, I knew who grew up dirt poor and build a successful construction business and, and, and like employ 20, 30 people at all times and just like a very compassionate, hardworking, gritty man. But yet he's 130 pounds and he's withering away and he's a shell person he once was, right? And so I'm standing by his bedside and he looks at me and he was like, Son, you're going to come out of this one day. You're going to beat this and you're going to do some great things for our family, for our community, and for this world. And Matt, when he said that, I literally had sweat beads rolling down my face cause I was withdrawing. And I was thinking to myself, it's the chemo talking, he's crazy because I don't even deserve the air that I'm breathing right now. That's how I saw myself. And two days later, last day of his life, I'm in the bathroom connected to his hospice room and I can hear my dad's heart rate monitor beeping, beeping and it flat lines. And I kid you not, I had a needle in my arm when my dad left this earth. And I walked out of I wiped the blood off my arm. I walk out of the bathroom. And I know the people can't see this, they're not gonna see the video, but I've got a gold necklace, a gold chain on my neck. It was my dad's. And I walked out of the bathroom, I went over to my dad and I gave him a kiss on the forehead. And again, like conscience I didn't have. I remember looking at my dad thinking to myself, I wonder who's going to get that necklace because in my mind, I'm already figuring out how I could sell that necklace. My dad just freaking died, man. And that's where my mind's at. That's how sick I was. That's what it does to you. And I remember giving him a kiss on the forehead, I call my pill dealer and I go right back to it. September 14th, 2017 is when my dad left this earth for the next three, Three years, basically two and a half years, I am just caution to the wind. Don't give a crap. Trying to trying to commit suicide by overdose. During that time, I overdosed six times. I had to be brought back with Narcan on three different occasions. Um, now looking back, I know that that God created. He continued to spare me for a reason. And in March of 2017, I got arrested. I had warrants stacked up in three different counties. I get arrested. My bond's $180,000. I'm sitting in jail. I know I'm not getting out for a while. And about three weeks into my jail stay, I start to feel something change in my heart. Um, And my mind's clear. And I'm thinking clearly for the first time in years, in 15 years. And I start to pray, to write out a prayer. And I was journaling at the time, and you can see a night and day difference in the person that I was and the person that experienced this transformation. And it was all about can't wait to get out, run the streets, like go back to selling and ripping and running, this and that, Um, cussing every other breath to this prayer where I'm like, God, if you're real, show me something. Show me that my dad's still with me somehow. And I lay my pen down after writing that prayer out, and I go upstairs to grab something come back down the steps and and a pastor walks in and he's got it's a striking striking resemblance of my dad and he walks in and he's got the same type of pants same shoes same flannel shirt his uh, same type of belt his shirt's tucked in eye color the same mustache is trimmed the same he's got his watch on the inside of his wrist and he comes up to me and he says you know he's, he's sharing sharing with the gospel and he's like son this all these things that you're carrying are not meant for you to carry like all this pain, all this trauma, everything. Like if you will just release it, give it to God and ask him, like how you can turn that stuff into purpose, like your life will change. And I believe that I bought a hook, line and sinker and Matt still to this day, I've not experienced an exhilarating feeling of freedom like I did in that moment. And I was locked up in Swain County detention center, but I knew things were changed. I knew things had changed. My mind was different. My heart was different. The way that I was thinking, the things that I wanted to do, like I was already thinking, like how to give back, how to make a difference. And that's when my life started to change, man.
0: And as you progressed in your spiritual journey, how did you wrestle with the idea of God as this omnipotent presence who has all this great power, but at the same time, you being, you, you having control over your life, and the decisions that came of it and stuff like that. I know this is a very open-ended question, but for a lot of people of faith, you have this issue of like, all right, how, what role does God play in my life versus what role and what the actions and the free will that I have in my own life to make those same decisions and then the interplay within it? Because someone who had experienced what you had gone through in the preceding 12 to 15 years, obviously those were you know, the byproduct of not only your circumstances, but also some of the decisions that you made. So how did you wrestle with the omnipotence that was there from the God perspective, but also the free will side of the choices that you make that affect your life on a day-to-day basis?
1: You know, I think the, for me, it's trying to figure out how those things intertwine. Like God's, um, oh my gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, God's will and my will. Right. And I feel like as long as I am trying to, like I was saying at the beginning of this conversation, as long as I'm trying to make an impact in this world, as long as I'm trying to give back, being generous, being compassionate, I feel like that's those two things mesh right there. Right. Being forgiving, being loving, um, you know, and being of service to my fellow human being. Like those are things that I feel like are most important. And so, it wasn't so much as a a wrestling as it was. How can you use me, God? Like what, what gifts do I have? What experiences do I have? How can I give back? And all those things I'm giving it to you and whatever you do with it is what you do with it. And that was my mindset while I was locked up. And
0: And as you're, as your paradigm started to shift and you started thinking about making impacts instead of things that were impacting you and how you could you know, enhance your life in the short term, what were some of the things that you decided upon? Like, hey, this, these are the impacts I want to have. And, and more importantly, who were the people that you identified as like, this is the, these are the, either the kinds of people or maybe even specific individuals that you identified that you wanted to make a difference on in a positive way? Um, you know, this, things really
1: started to take a shift. Um, when I was locked up, I started to just read different things. Um, just, you know, fill my mind with good, positive, inspirational type stuff, material and everything. And I knew that, you know, I couldn't go back to the people, places, and playgrounds that I had once been in, you know, you got to change, you got to change everything. And so, uh, you know, I tried to enlist some mentors and, and uh, like my my pastor and, and people in my in my faith community and things of that nature. Um, but while I was locked up, you know, we had a very, very close knit group of guys that started to work out. And this is kind of how fitness and movement and running uh, kind of entered my life running, actually, because we don't we couldn't run in jail. I mean, you're in a little pod, but we had 20 steps. In C pod of Swain County Detention Center, Matt, and I would go up and down the steps for hours. Up, I'd be up in the morning, everybody else would be still laying in the bed, waiting on breakfast to come, and I'd be down downstairs in our common area just walking laps, walking laps. And um, one of the cool things about my story is we, we ordered a men's health body weight workout guide when I was locked up. And here recently, I just got featured in a men's, men's health article. As a, a first step series um shared along with other people who have transformed their lives through fitness and everything, so being able to do that, work out to that guy, and then being featured in men's health like it's it's just incredible but you know i I knew I, that I needed to um aspire to be like the people like that were making an impact in life. One of the books that I read that really changed my life was um, Khalil Rafati, I Forgot to Die. It's the name of the book, I Forgot to Die. So I read that book, and I, you know, it, ch- it helped change my life and everything. And then this another thing, um, a magazine article or a newspaper article comes through from the Cherokee One Feather, and my tribe does this joint venture with Cherokee Nation out in Oklahoma every year. It's an annual thing. It's called um, Remember the Removal Bike Ride. And so it's, it's 900 miles. They retraced the northern route of the Trail of Tears. Um, for people that don't know, the Trail of Tears is when the government took our uh, land from the five civilized tribes, shipped us out west, and put us in Indian uh, territory out in Oklahoma. So we retraced this route as a way to honor and remember our ancestors and the, the things that we had to go through. So I see this article. And I'm like, man, when I get out, I want to apply for that. I want to do it. I want to like show people in recovery, like we can do amazing things like with our bodies still, um, even though like all the things that we've been through, like we can still do amazing things. And so I get out of jail, um, I, August of 2017 and I go to apply for that bike ride. They told me I couldn't do the bike ride because I had a felony drug conviction on my record. So I'm advocating for a rule change. I go to our leadership, um, our tribal leadership, council members, vice chief and chief. And I'm standing in front of um, just the whole, This called the horseshoe. All the leadership, talking to them, it's a televised event, advocating for this rule change. Um, long story short, they tell me no. And in the moment, Matt, I think it was just ego. But I was like, if you're not going to let me ride the bike to Oklahoma, then I'll just run it. and. That's how running was
0: introduced back into my life. And that what was a change. What a change from your senior year of high school when <laughs> a door got closed and you were like, well, I guess that's it. No more for me. And then, you know, 10 years later, you kind of had having a very different approach, right? Of like, oh, you say I can't do it. Well, watch this. Watch what I can do. Um, how were you? I just I think that the mental part is the part that like I'm fascinated by it, like this. Right. You mentioned before when your dad pulls you to his bedside in hospice and shares with you his dream for you and his belief in you, and you immediately saying, at that moment, you like had this shame of like, I don't even, I don't deserve this, so on and so forth. And then fast forward a few years after you, you know, I've have started, have started to get clean and going through recovery. Not only are you, you know, trying to get better, but you're making these big, big dreams. So how did you get past or work through, and maybe you're still doing it, this, whether you want to call it imposter syndrome or shame or lack of self belief, you know that that was so present earlier on, and now is something that doesn't seem to be holding you back at all. If and certainly not nearly as much as it did in the past. Oh, man,
1: um, I think just having the perspective of knowing that anything that I face from here on out in my life will be as difficult as, as to what I overcame. And so reframing it in that nature and and just realizing like, man, I just, I overcame that. Like, you know, this obstacle right here is nothing compared to that mountain I just climbed. You know, obviously we're going to have challenges and controversy and different difficulties in life, but I just, I try to keep that perspective and try to
0: keep that healthy growth mindset about things. So you're sitting there, you say, well, watch this. I'm going to go run 900 miles. Now, a lot of people can talk trash. A lot of people can say things. Doing things is a lot harder. That is for sure. So you put that stake in the ground. Um, tell me about the follow-up. Because that is, even for an experienced ultra runner, that would be quite a thing to lay down. To say nothing of someone who was anything but at that point.
1: Yeah, it was. I remember when I said it in that moment, I've seen people roll their eyes and scoff, which I get it, right? I mean, you got this person who's in early recovery. At that point in time, I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now, you know, just now like starting to get into exercise and things of that nature. And so I might have scoffed too. Um, But, but, you know, when I got out of jail, back up for just a second, I did, I saw, I seen, I seen a uh, YouTube video of David Goggins and I was eight weeks post-release. Mind you, I was, like I said, 50 50 pounds heavier than what I am now, and I signed up for an Ironman 70.3. No training, I didn't swim, I bought a bike the day before I left to go to Wilmington, and I ran a half a mile before that Ironman 70.3. I was the first person in the water, 1800 competitors, and everybody passed me on the swim. And I remember saying again, just reframing it like, man, everything it has came out of, everything I just overcame, I can do this. I can do this. And I just kept telling myself that throughout the whole day. I finished that half Ironman. man. I found this new community of people, endurance athletes. And I I heard, you know, similar stories to mine. And I'm like, man, this is this is my people. You know, like this is where I belong, right here. And you know, I mean that that's that was the thing that really instilled that belief that I could do hard things. Um and so fast forward back now to whenever I just said what I said to my, my tribal leadership, I was like, okay, they don't believe me. Um, they're scoffing, they're laughing at me. I'm gonna prove them wrong. And I started to train. And I remember um, you know, just putting in miles. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh I you know I just winged it, honestly, and I started training in November 2017. May 8, May 14th, 2018, I left from Gadoa Mound, which is our mother town in Cherokee. Um, that's where we believe that we came from. Like we were formed out of the dirt of that area. And I had tribal leadership, same people that scoffed at me, laughed at me, show up to send me off, and I started started that journey on the Trail of Tears on, on the Bend route.
0: Holy cow, six months. My goodness. I mean I I don't even know where to begin with that one, Caleb. It, it really is it's remarkable. I think like, you know, so often we look back and we're like, where were we, we were six months ago? And it's like, oh, you know, basically in the same place I am now, right? In terms of like our productivity, you know, if we want to just think about athletics, maybe our fitness, maybe, you know, from a family perspective, job perspective, right? How often um, are we fairly stagnant? Even if we are you know, being active or you know producing a little bit, it's not to the level where there's growth occurring. And yet here you were certainly growing in a lot of ways. And I think this is a great reminder that especially for a beginner, that done is better than perfect. You don't need the best training plan. All you need to do is get out there. So there are probably people listening to this that while they may not have experienced the things that you experienced, they may also be at the beginning of a journey or the cusp of something new or want to you know, change part of their life, maybe even in a very drastic manner. Can you just talk about what starting means and what that's like and the mindset you need to start something in a way that isn't self-defeating, right? So you're not like putting too much expectation on it, but you're also at the same time valuing the experience. So the middle ground there, making sure that you're, you know, starting this path in the right way and not either sabotaging it or taking it too lightly where it's not important enough.
1: Yeah. You know, I think just having, um, honestly, just being encouraged, no matter where you are, like that, it's an exciting thing to actually set a goal. It's an exciting thing to um, start to you know start a new journey, new endeavor, and you know just having fun with it. I think for me, I'm a goal oriented person. I love to put something on the calendar, hold me accountable. I love to enlist other people to help encourage me and everything. You know, um, that that's a couple of things that I would say to somebody is like make sure it's fun, make sure it's just hard enough where you can accomplish it, but it's not too easy. And, you know, just start where you're at. You know, like I said, I started with 20 steps in a gel and I did that consistently. Um, you know, and
0: I I mean, just keep it simple. Right. So extreme endurance athletics or just even endurance training, um, certainly can be a valuable part in someone's recovery. You don't have to go far in the ultra world to see this story being told over and over again. Again, not to say that all ultra runners um, have this sort of story, but it is quite prevalent. And we've talked about in this podcast and there's been plenty of ultra uh, media that have covered this sort of thing. But at the same time, it's not the same as or it's not equal to the actual steps needed for recovery, right? It's a nice component. I think it, it, it certainly—you can speak to this—complements it very well. So, how did your um, recovery journey, in terms of the steps needed for recovery specifically outside of athletics, how has that grown and matured over the last seven years? Yeah, I mean, if if
1: running is my only form of uh, therapy or recovery, then I'm in trouble you know yeah but, you're you're one injury away right <laughs> exactly um you know running is not who i am running is part of you know part of me and so for me uh starting out in my recovery journey it's it was um going to meetings going to classes just immersing myself in the community and everything and and then also just practicing my faith you know and just trying to again focusing on tohi focusing on harmony balance how am I mentally physically you know spiritually like all emotionally am I how am I taking care of those things and so that was that's what I was focusing on early on and that's what I continue to focus on today um but yeah just enlisting mentors, people that I can check in, check in with one of the biggest things that held me back from I think from finding recovery um, very early on and I think a lot of people can relate to this is ego. You know, ego gets in the way um, and tells you not to put your hand up. You know, that that voice inside your head was like, we will tell you that nobody cares. And and that's so far from the truth. And so it takes a lot of courage to put your hand up. And so trying to um, silence that ego, trying to get out of my own way, um, making sure that I, that I lead with vulnerability, making sure that I check in with people, you know, as far as like, if I'm having a bad day, I've got one of my friends here. I'm I'm speaking right now. I'm at a church. He's, he's a pastor here. Like I check in with him all the time, like enlisting people, um, like that in your life, having a sponsor, you know, um, things of that nature have
0: really, really helped me in my recovery journey. So running 900 miles and in an extremely culturally relevant event is a big goal to have, right? Especially when it's like one of the first goals you've had. How how have you now gone um, through your goal setting and different goals that you've had? Um, excuse me, uh, within your own fitness journey, whether that's running, triathlon, or any other endeavor. Oh
1: man, um, well I wish my wife was here right now because she'd tell you that. Uh, I am a spur of the moment type, you know, a lot of the times my, my goals are inspired like during one of my runs and, you know, I just, I mean, along the way, I hadn't even shared like leading up to that trail of tears run. I did my first marathon. I did the Badwater Cape fear. Um, right after that, I did a 50 K and, um, all in the
0: six months between November and March Yeah, or November and May. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I was the second to last to finish the bad water. I ran a five twenty five um, marathon, my first marathon. Thought that was the greatest thing. I was like, man, I'm flying out here. Like, <laughs> and then my fifty k, I walked the last ten k because
0: it was it just destroyed me. But I just continued. Caleb, hey, sh- makes you feel any better? So did I. My last <laughs> first fifty k. <50K. laughs> <laughs>
1: I ran it at Davidson. It was such a fast loop. It was, you know, um, a six mile loop. And I remember like going out way too fast. And, and then I just died on the last, on the last loop and everything. But I just continued, you know, just continued to put myself in these situations where I'd be challenged, where, um, you know, I knew it was th- the end goal was trying to prepare for this trail of tears run and everything. And I knew that I had to get uncomfortable and I knew it was going to be covering a lot of miles. So um, that was one of the things that
0: I was doing leading up to that. For sure. And since that time, again, just not the goal oriented, the goal oriented part of you died, you know, right? you know for, during that time. So how has your fitness journey evolved since then? As someone, I, I've, I met you in person, we've talked about some of your running as well. So, you know, like how, like, what are the steps that you've taken since then in terms of like goals that you wanted to accomplish and races that you wanted to do and just your evolution as an athlete?
1: Yeah. So after finishing the trail of tears run, I finished it June 28th on my birthday. Um, I, I started to enter into the ultra world a little bit more. And I did that for a couple of years and I did several 50 milers. Um, I did a hundred miler in, in Georgia, the Georgia jewel, and just continue to like just accumulate miles, you know? And, um, one of the significant events that happened during that time, Matt, it was one actually the like my first big loss in recovery. I remember finishing a 15 mile or a 50 miler, it's called the Fontan Dango here in western North Carolina. It was March 2nd. I get to work the next day. I can barely walk. I sit down to eat breakfast and my mom calls me screaming. And my sister had just overdosed and passed away. And so I lost my sister, unfortunately, you know, since I've been on this recovery journey. And, you know, that obviously that um, anniversary death is is coming up soon. Um, But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's been it's been a wild ride. And um, after after that happened, uh, 2019, my wife and I actually biked uh, most of the Pacific Coast Highway from Canada to Mexico. So, uh, you know, that was a blast. You know, we went trail of tears, 2018 Pacific coast highway, 2019 on bikes. Um, 2020 I hired our mutual friend and my coach, uh, Jeff, no, it wasn't 2020, excuse me. Um, 21, I I started to focus more on the marathon and I hired uh Jeff Cunningham to be my coach. And Jeff's been coaching me for the last two, two plus years. And, um, I think I got those dates right. Anyways, you know I've I've been focusing on the marathon for the last two plus years, and I've currently got my PR down to two forty twenty four, which is what I ran Ooh. at Boston last year.
0: Man, super fast. That is for sure. So, how have you incorporated um, having a positive impact on your communities? Um, whether they're you know the Cherokee community that's been part of your life ever since you were born, or these burgeoning communities, whether it's ultras or running and things like that, you know, you mentioned while you were in jail, one of the epiphanies you had was you wanted to make a difference. So, over you know, as you've gone through recovery, in addition to your athletic journey, what are some of the things that you've really tried to embrace in terms of cultural social impact?
1: Well, um, I'm a I mean, I'm a running coach. And you know, building a community and helping people to experience a love for running and going out and accomplishing big audacious goals that they set for themselves is that's a huge part of you know who I am and what I love to do. Um, so that's something that I've, I've been building for the last couple of years, and uh, we're getting ready to open up a men's recovery house. It's actually we we actually just named it. It's called the Gadoogie House, and Gadoogie means uh, community in Cherokee. And so we're going to be opening that up in the next month. And um, fitness movement is going to be a huge um, key pillar of our program. Uh, we got a, we got a program called Addict to Athlete. We're going to be building a gym on site. And the, the guys are going to be doing – I'm going to be leading group workouts. We're going to be doing um, meetings at the end of the workouts, check-ins, um, groups, things like that. So – and also, too, the cultural piece is going to be a big – a big piece of the program as well, helping men like me um, just understand who they are as as Cherokee men. It's also, it's also going to be serving non-enrolled members as well. So, um, you know, I'm sure we'll have people from Oklahoma, people from Bryson City like, you know, that, that need help and need that support and everything. And so that's another big piece that um, that I have, you know, in my life right now that I'm trying to give back and make an impact
0: on. Now, earlier in our conversation, you said that you were making up for lost time in terms of your connection to Cherokee Nation and learning more about your own identity as a Cherokee man. How have you embraced that journey or you know, while you've been in recovery? One of the things that's helped me make
1: that connection back to who I am was that Trail of Tears run, understanding what my people went through, what they overcame, understanding the resiliency that we have as Cherokee people. Running also helps me to connect back to who I am as Cherokee, you know, understanding like understanding the impact and significance of the places that I run, you know, where I'm putting my feet, who lived here, you know, how we lived, um, how we went, you know, how we went about, you know, um, I guess just, uh, build a community as Cherokee people, you know, um, Honestly, it, it's a time for me, Matt, for to, to connect with Creator. It's a time. It's a time for me. To like I really believe that the gifts that I've been given, like what I do with those, is a gift that I give back to Creator. And I give back to God, and so like running is one of those gifts. One of those. It's one of those things where I feel so connected um to god to creator when i'm whenever i'm out there doing it you know it's a form of prayer it's a form of worship like thank you for allowing me to have this body to be able to move and and use and and um so yeah i mean those are some ways that 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 has really helped me how my running's really helped me to connect back to my culture
0: yeah and i know in you know in terms of indigenous people just across the globe not even here like in the north american continent you know the idea of running or endurance traveling and something that has been ingrained in a lot of different indig- indigenous cultures, is there a component of that within your connection um, to your Cherokee culture in terms of like the, um, the historical aspect of that, or is that not something that's necessarily relevant to, you know, your, your, um, your experience?
1: No, actually, Matt, there is a, there is a
0: story, man, that I'd love to share that
1: I'd love to share. Yeah, like um I mean as I was doing research planning for the Trail of Tears run, I found that um there was a letter wrote from a fort in Pennsylvania um asking for Cherokee warriors to be sent to Pennsylvania. Um it was a fort here close to Cherokee, which is basically I want to say close to 500 miles away. Um and they were like, "Can you send warriors to help out? We got a battle coming up." 5 days later, the The officer from this fort in Pennsylvania wrote again and said, the Warriors just arrived here on foot. So they ran 500, basically 500 miles in five days.
0: Holy cow. And
1: just understanding like, okay, like we, we are runners. Cherokee people are, are you know, we, we are outstanding runners. It's, it, it's ingrained in our DNA. Um, that really gave me a lot of confidence preparing for that Trail of Tears run, hearing that story. And then hearing other stories where you'd hear warriors who would be racing um, horses from town to town.
0: So. Yeah. How could that, how can that not have an impact? That's for sure. I mean, even someone who's not Cherokee has an impact on me. Right. Cause Hey, like if they can do it, why can't I do it? Right. That whole vibe. Right. Even if you're not part of a culture, you can still have that sense of like, if it's possible, then why not me? Um, intuition that can, that can kind of come along with that as well. Well, Caleb, I could talk to you for three more hours, and I've I've no doubt that it would be a really fun conversation. But that said, you have a documentary coming out, hopefully around Boston Marathon Week. Can you tell me uh, more about that, and just like I guess, um, what what they're going to be showcasing, and where people can get more information? Because also, this is kind of a you know an evergreen episode. So you might be listening to this a year from now, so um, you know, where just tell me more about it and how people are go- could potentially see it.
1: So we're going to be um, entering in. We're going to enter the documentary into film festivals. Um, we're going to be doing different viewings, um, probably in Cherokee, Brevard, North Carolina, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and and at the Boston Marathon. We're hoping to finish it up before then, and then we're going to put it on different uh, streaming platforms once that happens. But the documentary came about uh, with I I met this guy um, during COVID. He was flying a drone. Long story short, started talking to him, sharing my story. And so he wanted to make a documentary about the 2018 Trail of Tears run. And so we, we go back and re we recreate um that run, the significance of it, you know, things I experienced along the way. I lost my aunt actually two weeks in to endo, endocarditis um complications from, you know, her her um IV drug use. And so we kind of retell that, how what you know, what transpired from that, how I dealt with it. Um yeah, I mean, so yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. Uh one of the cool things about the whole documentary and, and just about the Boston Marathon for me personally, like I remember when, when the bombing happened, I was living with my dad at the time, and uh I remember coming down the steps and I had never heard of the Boston Marathon. You know, like I mean I'd been out of that whole world, the running world, you know, because I was in this, this drug addiction for so long. But I remember coming down the steps and I seen you know, the news just blowing up about the bombing. And ten years later, last year, I'm find myself at the Boston Marathon. And I remember thinking, you know, once I got there, I was like, I was strung out on drugs ten years ago, never thought that I would be here and now here I am and you know, ultimately running a two forty marathon, which is
0: incredible. Sure is. That's for sure. Okay. We'll also have the links for people to follow you on social media. Those will be in the show notes as well. Caleb, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about your journey. Thanks, Matt.
1: Appreciate it.